Hello, and welcome to this edition of Pragmatic Live. Today, we're going to try something a little bit different. Today, we're going to tackle your questions. Questions about all kinds of topics, questions just from listeners like you. And helping us address these questions in our first edition of the Pragmatic Live mailbag is Dave Daniels, Vice President of Customer Success at Pragmatic and also a longtime instructor, and Steve Johnson, one of the founding instructors at Pragmatic and all-around product management guru. Today, Kelly has gathered up all kinds of questions from all kinds of sources, and she is going to pose questions. Take it away, Kelly. First question, how do you identify the most influential persona for a specific sale? So in every purchase, there are multiple buyer personas. Some are the people who use the product, who also are influencing the purchase of the product. Some are technical personas who are looking for compliance, like the procurement people or the IT people. Um, and some of them are the financial-oriented buyers, like you know the traditional buyer persona. The money people. Uh, the money people. And ultimately, you know, we want to focus, actually, we want to focus on all of them um, so often salespeople just say, I want to focus on the big buyer. You know, let me call a high, let me call on the CEO. But the CEO is going to turn to his lieutenants and say, well, should we do this one or that one? So we need to focus on all the personas that have an influence in the buying cycle. You could say that, <laughs> but you would be wrong. <laughs> so... To support Steve's point, yes, of course, there's multiple personas we need to, to uh, be adherents to. One of the things we actually teach in our market class is the concept of a buying landscape so that you can identify which buyers have the most influence um, over the entire buying decision. That said, um, we're looking at it from a market po point of view rather mm -hmm. than a individual sales point of view. Even with that, down to the sales level, each sales rep is going to encounter their own differences from account to account. So that's why I hesitated when I answered the question initially, because it was more about a specific sales deal as opposed to a market of buyers. But we do address that by uh, something that we call the buyer landscape to try to figure out of all the buyers we have to influence, which is the one who has the most influence that will give us the best outcome in a buy. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there are multiple buyers, and we have to help them all make a yes, good decision. Someone. That's correct. You Not, can't we ignore can't just them. focus on one and ignore the others. That's correct. So that means, you know, if we were selling school software, you know, you'd sell to the principal of the school, but you'd also have to have the teachers on board and the uh, admin people on board, and oh, potentially maybe even the students might be the considered parents. and the, the parents. Yeah. What are some key questions to ask for each stage of the buyer's journey? What are some examples of those questions? Um, great question. Um, the thing you're looking to get out of understanding how the buyer's journey flows is you want to understand who are the personas involved in a step in the buying journey or, or buyer's experience, as we like to call it, BX, and two... What information do they need in order to satisfy where they are so they go on to the next step? And then three, what is the trigger that moves them to that next step? So what is that thing where they've got all the pieces and parts together and they go, okay, I'm ready. Let's move on. We're ready to go to the next step. 
at the very beginning, we want to understand what's causing the pain that they're trying to solve. So questions around what caused you to start looking will give you insight on how to get them into the funnel and to begin their buying journey. Um, uh, what tools are you looking at would give you insights on the competitive landscape. Uh, you know, a lot of the questions I might ask in win-loss analysis about doing a post-mortem of the buying journey would be, would give us insights on what questions to ask and what sales tools to provide for each step of the journey. What are the differences between a buyer persona and a user persona? Are there different insights that you would want to gather on each? Yes, indeed. There's a big difference. And I, I was talking to somebody recently and they were, I brought up personas and they're like, oh, we only have those for buyers. They didn't even understand that, you know, users could be personas, which is kind of funny because it actually this whole thing started in the user side. But anyway, the things you want to know about user personas are things that will help you guide the product you develop. Um, like their familiarity with different kinds of technology. Um, in a persona document that we have for a product manager, we assume they know how to or could learn how to use pivot tables. That's not true for the user persona that is your grandmother. Although your grandmother may be really technical. Most grandmothers can't do pivot tables, I'm thinking. Um, so a user persona has the same kind of demographic information you'd put in a buyer persona, but the insights are, what do I need to know to develop to this person? Whereas a buyer persona is, what do I need to know to sell and market to this person? Dave, you want to add anything? The easiest way to think about the differences between a user persona and a buyer persona is that a user persona captures the context about individuals that we're building the product for. So we have deep empathy and understanding for how to build an effective solution. Uh, easiest way to think about buyer personas is those are the individuals that influence a buying decision. So we want to be able to get enough depth and understanding about them to help us communicate to them the value of our solutions so um, we can hopefully get them to buy our products. And pretty much nobody cares if they have cats. And one more if, for, for the fun yeah. of it. Remember, dogs don't buy dog food. Dogs are users. Buyers, I mean, dog owners buy dog food. And the promotion you do for the dog owners is pretty funny. I mean, if you went to a dog and said, what would you like in the product? They'd say, stuff I found in the yard, right? <laughs> I mean, what do dogs eat, right? But you go to the packaging and you see that it's really targeted to buyers because it sounds yummy. You know, it's got meat byproducts oh, and I grains and stuff. And it's like, that sounds pretty darn good. Let's have a bowl. So they, they've targeted the buyer of dog food with a promotional message that helps them buy healthy food for their, their pets, as opposed to, you know, also they have to build a product that the dog will actually eat. So buyers and users. Dogs don't eat dog, dog Dogs don't buy dog food. Here's our next one. How do you deal with persona non-believers? Some people think of them as marketing fluff. You know... A lot of them are marketing fluff. We sit in a conference room and we imagine this fictitious, fake person who has cats. I'm big on the cat thing. But 
we make up this thing out of whole cloth without any relevance to the real market. And so we deliver that to, you know, a marketing agency or we deliver it to developers and they're like, this doesn't look like anyone I have ever heard of because they're made up. Um, some companies say, uh, we don't use personas, we just build for ourselves. And that's great if you're building a product for yourself. I mean, that's the case with Basecamp, for instance, which is create was created by people who needed to do project management. And that's fine if that's the business you're in. But not all of us can say that. So we need to build a picture for our developers and our marketers of here's what these people look like. This is what they read. Oh, here's a good one. I love this one. Yeah. Do you want to say anything before I move on? No, even, even though you say so, it's, it's, okay. it sounds good already. I worked with a team. I worked with a team. They just hired a new chief marketing officer who had read apparently one full report and concluded that it turns out government documents are written for an eighth grade reading level, which actually seems a little high to me. But anyway. So she mandated that all of the marketing material be rewritten for an eighth grade reading level. They put them all out. Sales team started reproducing the old collateral before the change because the clients who were doctors and pharmacists said, don't bore me with this marketing fluff. Where's the real content? Because they started with this fictitious American generic human as an eighth grade reading level, and yet their target persona what had you know advanced degrees. Um, I certainly, I hope I read more than an eighth grade reading level. Pretty sure I do. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so the biggest issue I run into is people consider personas fluff because they are. They're based on fictitious nonsense. Yeah, very much. A lot of a lot of them who say we don't believe in them or we don't use them is because they're not based in any relevance in the market. They're just creative writing stories. But anyway, it's to Steve's point. Yeah, they're, they're creative writing exercises. And so when they're actually used in the real world, they don't make any connection. The messages don't connect. The positioning is all over the map. Uh, salespeople go, are you kidding me? Those aren't the people I'm calling on. And so that just flows right back and they just kill the whole project. So basically, if you don't believe in Personas in in your marketing team, chances are there's probably a track record of, of making stuff up. How often do you see user personas owned by product marketing versus product management? Almost never. What I see is for companies that have user personas, the, the not argument, but the delineation is often uh, UX design people often own user personas and product managers have an approval role to them. Uh, uh, one of the new things that we have at Pragmatic is a lab around roles and responsibilities. And as we do that, we find often product marketing generally owns uh, um, buyer personas, product management generally owns user personas. And in the cases where UX takes ownership of the user personas, then we give product managers the approval authority for that document before it goes into production. I've seen teams go overboard and develop a multitude of personas, which did nothing for improving focus. How do you go about limiting yourself to the most relevant persona or personas? How many buyer personas did you end up with? 
the correct answer is three to five personas. What happens is people, dis, uh, people get confused by personas versus titles. And so they say, well, there's, there's this title and this title and this title and this title and this title, and they build five or six or seven personas when in fact they're all basically the same persona. And one team I worked with, the, uh, they sold to colleges and they had a persona for a provost, a chancellor, a president, and another one that's the same as the other three that I just said. And those four roles are identical. The roles are identical, even though the titles are different. In some, you know, in, if you're a military college in its origin, you, you have a provost. If it was a, a, a religious college in its origin, then you have a chancellor or something like that. But basically, it's four different titles for the same person. So head of the college or president of the college is the one persona. There aren't four. And this, tip, this particular team had 33 personas because they did them by title instead of by role. And what you do is you look at, I mean, maybe you do have seven or eight, and you look at them and go, you know what? These two are mostly the same. Their big issues are mostly the same. Then you've got one persona instead of two. Yeah, I don't want to be that that prescriptive. I'm a big prescriptive well, kind of guy. I know you're a prescriptive yeah. kind of guy. because um, you, you can argue me out of three, three to five three if to you've got a really good argument. You've got to, data. Well, three to five is good if you're, you know, just want to throw numbers out there. But the, the real story, I think, is what happens is um, companies will look at personas as a project. And what they'll do is they'll look at all of their products and they'll look at all of the market segments they go after and they go, oh, my goodness, look at how many people we have to create and personas, as to Steve's point, they look at all of these different titles in these different market segments, and that's the wrong approach. The right approach is to pick one, understand it, and it, it means not just to build the personas, but you're looking at who are the people who influence the buying decision. I'm looking at it from the go-to-market side of the house. Maybe there's three, maybe there's two, maybe there's eight. It just depends on the market. It depends on the nature of the product, the category that it's in, the complexity of the purchase. And in the end, um, you know, you, you let the process guide you to the number of personas and what they are, not turn it into a giant project where you're checking them all done um, one, at, one at a time. Because in the end, not only do you build them, but you have to maintain them. Right. Right, and that's and where keep people track get hung of them. up. Exactly. So you're in a meeting, and you're like, "Well, what do, what would Robert say?" And you're like, "Who the hell is Robert? Yeah. I thought his name was Robin." Oh, and that's another one. We go androgynous, which just cracks me up. You know, it's like, "Well, Pat, the product manager, he she does this, and he she does that," and you're like, "No, pick." And if pick. it doesn't matter, just if it know, doesn't matter, just pick. Worry. Just pick. Doesn't matter. But we tend to have too many, and that means people can't remember what's what. And, then, and they don't maintain them. So I'll go back to my three to five. I'm going to agree with you violently and then disagree with you. Three. My guess is if you have more than five personas, then you don't have focus on your market. I, I agree with that. How early is too early to do beta or user testing? It is never too early to do user testing. But don't confuse it with beta testing. If you look up beta testing in a technical dictionary, it will say we're going to test a release candidate in an environment we cannot duplicate in the lab. In other words, customer employees use a release candidate in their production environment at a customer site. 
I vastly prefer, in fact, alpha testing, which is defined as vendor employees test a release candidate on customer equipment. So what we're really looking at there is, okay, we've got the 18.12 release. We need to verify that it works on everybody's machines. It works with the data they have. It works with the network gear they have, whatever. That is a testing exercise. User testing would be better referred to as validation testing. We've got some a feature we want to build, and we've got a prototype. We've got a drawing of a prototype, and we show it to half a dozen users and say, how would you use this? What buttons would you click? What, how would you go from here to here to here? The absolute best prototyping tool for user testing is a flip chart and a marker, or better yet, a dry erase board so you can quickly erase it. So there's never it's never too early to do user testing. As soon as you have an idea, test it. Um, use alpha and beta testing when you've got a release candidate, when you're ready to put something out there and, and make sure you can run it on multiple customer environments. And the big problem is, once upon a time, we all took computer science classes and there were only a few methodologies and and the language was rather simple you know it was like requirements were the what specifications were the how and then over time everything got smushy and so we started seeing things like requirement specifications which is like heads tails you know it's it's a nonsensical phrase and then somebody said well let's test this and then they started adding beta to it and so the beta came to mean something else and, and we've, we've lost this precision that we used to have in our language. And I think maybe that's because there are so many people in product management and product marketing who did not come up through the ranks of computer science. And so they're kind of appropriating this jargon and, and maybe not understanding it's the, the true meaning of some of the words that we use quite casually. Join us next week as we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your company, your products, and your career.